Well, good morning and welcome. Welcome those here in the atrium. Welcome those out in the tent and online. We are in a series called In Tune. And how do we get in tune with God? How do we get in tune with purpose? How do we get in tune with making life really, really count? And I love the words of that song. How might our lives be different if we lived every day knowing we only have a short amount of time? Live like you're dying. We often say to ourselves, I got plenty of time to fix that, plenty of time to get to that. But it's actually times when you realize I only have so much time left, you start to be more intentional. You start to think about those hundred years we're all given, or maybe less. And how do we make the most of our marriages, the most of our careers, the most of our legacies? We begin to ask ourselves, what do I want to be known for? And how do I organize the rest of the decisions I have and the rest of the time I have to that end? But our culture moves at such a pace, we don't do a lot of contemplating or slowing down to think about it. So we're going to try that this morning. To think about how much time we have and how we want to make the best use of it. Now to do that, I'm going to take you through a little exercise where we're going to think about our lives and ask ourselves that question how do you and I want to be remembered let's take a few moments and contemplate together a hundred years to live you know in the first song we sang said that there are 86,400 seconds in a day it's rare that we think about our time like that, right? So, so often we're just in one of those seconds and we just have to figure out what do I do next? But as Chad was drawing, as, as we were contemplating, the word he ended with was grace. We think about the word grace as an epitaph. One word to describe an entire life of ups and downs, relationships and memories well, what is grace? Because we hear that word from time to time. But there's a picture in the Bible that actually says that grace may be the most important word you've ever heard. That it may actually be the perfect word to put at the end of a life to describe the whole thing. That it may even draw you from this life to the next. And so what is it? Well, I, whenever I ask that kind of question, I start by looking it up in the dictionary. And I had to write this down because this is what Webster, he seems to know everything. This is what Webster says that grace is. Unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. Which is like, thanks a lot, Webster. <laughs> I know, all of us are like, I, I understood that. I don't know about you, but I hate it when I get definitions where now I have to go look up all the words in the definition so I can understand the definition. You know, another one that was on there was that grace is a seemingly effortless air or freedom of movement. Like I remember always hearing people talk about Aubrey Hepburn as if she just had a, an air of grace about her. Or if you watch the Olympics over the next couple weeks, I guarantee you somebody is going to describe somebody as moving with such grace. And I know that wasn't it. That's not what it looks like. <laughs> that's, that's my pitiful example, right? In fact, I, I even noticed there's one of the gals on the, um, on the gymnastics team is named Grace. So you know they won't be able to help themselves. But is that what we're talking about? And maybe you hear people say that, that someone is gracious. 
And maybe your grandfather was such a gracious person. Or, or, or maybe you would tell me that, that your mom was such a gracious person. And as soon as you say that, I start to think of a, a picture of something like kindness. Now we're getting closer. You see, in, in, in this book... If this is God's word and God is who he says he is, then, then this book claims that it is given to us so that we can understand who he is. And grace is one of the words that he uses more than any other word. In fact, there's a, a place in here where a guy is writing to, a letter to a group of his friends. People that are not that different from us. They, they weren't terribly familiar with a lot of the things in the Bible. Many of them weren't familiar with it at all. But they were trying to figure out who is God? How, how do I think about God if he's really out there? Does that change how I think about myself or how I think about other people? Because most of what they knew about God was like wrath and judgment. And so this guy, Paul, is writing to his friends in Ephesus a letter called Ephesians. And he tells them that God actually has a different plan for them. He says that God has a plan that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So just think about that for a minute. As you read a verse like that, you know, maybe you're like me. Like there's, there's a lot of times where if I'm thinking about God, that can create anxiety for me, right? Like if God is real and if he is perfect and, and if he has given us a moral code to follow and I have not, at least not as much as I meant to, then a lot of times we put God in the position only of judge. That he's the one sitting up in heaven somewhere and saying, mm, mm, mm. Again, I should have known. It's true. I mean, what did I expect? Right? And then that's why like every religious system in the world puts in tons of time and energy trying to figure out how do we get back in God's good graces. And listen, like the, the part of God as judge is real. Right? Like, if, if the Bible is his word, he tells us, actually even just a couple lines before this, that we all, by our very nature, were objects of wrath. And you think like, see, that's why I don't read the Bible. <laughs> right? like, I'm so glad I came to Horizon today so I could be told I deserve wrath. Well, think about it this way. When somebody does something wrong to you, like, like really wrong, don't you have the right to be angry? Well, there's a sense in which God says, because he is perfect, because he has laid out the moral standard, that whenever any of us do anything wrong, big or little, God has a right to be angry. And it's like the, uh, the English poet Alexander Pope in the 18th century says, you know this one, to err is human. And that word means not just like, oh, whoops, I, I made a mistake. It means there's actually stuff I need forgiveness for. You know the second part of that? To err is human. To forgive is divine. You see, that's what Paul's telling his friends. Yes, yes. Almost like, yeah, I, I know. We were all by nature objects of wrath. I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. I've done things that, like, I don't live up to my own moral code, let alone God's moral code. I'm not even sure if we have the same moral code. But get this. His plan is that in the ages to come, beyond 100 years, in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us. Realize that wherever you stand and how you think about God today, right? Like whether you're sitting here and you think like, 
you appreciate that I care about this, but you're an atheist and you're just not that into it. Maybe you're just not sure if we can really know for sure. Or maybe you say, I believe that he's there, but I don't know what to think about him. I don't know how to know him. You want to get to know him better. If the Bible is what it claims to be, this is God explaining himself to you. That he says he is the God of the universe. That everything I think belongs to me actually belongs to him. And yet he doesn't describe his riches with money, gold, silver, power, influence. He describes his wealth, his exceeding riches with the word grace. That the wealth of the heavens is grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, how do you think about God? Because I, th- I think what Paul wants for us, I think what the Bible wants for you, I, I would say I want this for you. See God as exceedingly kind. Like let that be the core position that God takes in your mind. And when you think God, you say, oh yeah, I, I heard about him. I heard that he's exceedingly kind. Because that becomes foundational for our understanding of grace. Philip Yancey is an author. He's got a book that is called What's So Amazing About Grace? Playing off that song that that we all know, like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Well, what's so amazing about it? And, And one of the things that he discovered in his own spiritual journey as he was trying to understand God, he says that it's this idea of grace, that grace teaches us that God loves Because of who God is. Not because of who we are. Now I find that really intriguing. And and you got to catch what he's saying here. Because what he means is, it's not because I'm so lovable. Right? It's not because I've done so many good things. How could God help but to look at me and say, I love that guy. What he's saying is, before you were even born, before you ever did anything right or wrong, God said, I love that guy. I love that gal. I want that to be my son, my daughter. I love them. That it's in the very character and nature of God that he loves, that he's kind, that he desires to show grace. You ever know somebody like that? Like it's just, it's just in them to be a kind person. If you're thinking, that's me. I, I'm that person. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, Come meet me afterwards. I'd love to be your friend. I need friends like that. I've got a friend like that, though. His name is Carl, and and Carl is my best friend, and he's one of these guys that, like, he's just a giver. And I remember I I first met Carl in seventh grade, and I have a Super Nintendo still today, my favorite video game system. I know you don't care, but it matters to me. (laughs) And I still have it today because Carl gave me a Super Nintendo in junior high. It was incredible. I was like, wow, I he must think I'm really cool. Like, I, I must just be like, an, like, I don't know what I did, but I'm amazing to him because that's a big gift from like one, I don't know, 13-year-old to another. Then like the next year, I remember this because he went on a trip to Jamaica. And the day that he got back to school, like he was gone for like two weeks. Like, Carl, you're back. He came, it was like Santa Claus, man. He had a bag with like 20 gifts in it that were not designated to anyone in particular. He just came to give things away today. And so I also have a really nice um, handcrafted Jamaican rug. <laughs> because Carl went to Jamaica and it's just time to give things. And what I've learned in my life, he's, he's still my best friend. He, he lives uh, just over the border there in Kentucky and we get to hang out. 
He's a giving person. That's who Carl is. The gifts I receive from Carl are, are not because I've proved myself to Carl, not because I've earned them from Carl. It's just because Carl's always looking for another way to give. And honestly, Carl is one of the people who has given me the most grace in my life. I, I mean, you know this, right? Like, our culture has no idea what grace is. If you text or tweet or email something 20 years ago that maybe you shouldn't have, like, people are digging for that because they want to tear you down. And I'm thankful that I did not have social media when I was a 13-year-old idiot. Because I, I, I can tell you specifically, I won't give you the whole story, but there's things I said to Carl that I, I probably should not be forgiven for. And I think it's the giver in Carl that not only did he forgive me, but man, that was, well, I'm not going to count the years for you. I'm on my way to 100. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> it was decades ago. And he's still my best friend. And if you ask him why, why would he show me that grace? Why would he give me that favor, that forgiveness, even though I didn't earn it and I didn't deserve it? He would tell you it's because he found that from God. When you ask him why he's such an amazing giver, he would tell you he learned that from God. And in fact, the next line in this letter that we're looking at, that's exactly what it says. Verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, there's kind of a lot of religious stuff and spiritual things going on here, so I want to break this down a little bit. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay, so that feels like the Webster's Dictionary thing. Okay, what do you mean saved? What do you mean faith? What do you mean? So, so here's, in essence, the story of the Bible. That God, in his love, created you so that he could love you. So that he could spend time with you. But that every single one of us has fallen short of his perfect standard. And that drives us out of his presence. That he has a right to be angry. That there are consequences that I deserve for the stuff that I've done. And a lot of times that's where we stop in terms of thinking about God's story. And we feel like, well, that's, and that's why I don't like it. It feels judgmental and I don't know about the Bible and I don't really want to read it. But what you realize is the entire thing is actually one big story where he's saying, remember, I've got this plan, though, because God is exceedingly kind. That although he would have every right, like after Adam and Eve, to just scrap the project, punish them both, you know, kill them off, and like move on. Instead, he says, no, I've got a different plan. I want to show them my grace. I want to show them exceeding riches of kindness. And so he came here in the flesh as Jesus Christ. And Jesus is basically God saying, you deserve the punishment, but I'm going to take it instead. That way you and I can get back to love and joy and forgiveness. And so if you trust him for that, if you look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you that there's stuff I need forgiveness for. And I trust that you have forgiven me. That's what the Bible means when it says you're saved faith. Saved from wrath, but saved to grace and blessing and joy and eternal life. Not by earning it, not by working harder, just by believing him that he did that for you. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And then he says it's not of yourselves. It, it's not by works. It is the gift of God. 
And I think it's interesting that he says, lest anyone should boast. Because I thought about that. Like, how many people do you actually hear say, <clears throat> so I have an announcement to make. I have saved myself by my works, and I did it better than you did. Like, people don't really boast about that, do they? And, and then I realized this. This is how I boast. It's probably something more like, oh my goodness, did you, did you hear what he did? And I didn't set that up as a boast, but right in that moment, I've decided that, well, sure, I've done things, but not like that. I mean, there are things that, like, my wife and I were talking about one of these yesterday, and I, and I, I won't go into it, but it was like, as we were talking, I could feel myself thinking, no, not for that person. No forgiveness for that person. That's, that's too far, isn't it? See, this is what happens. If we don't have grace, morality becomes a moving target. Because then I get to decide, do I, do I feel forgivable? Well, then I must be. And if I don't think you're forgivable, it's probably because somewhere I decided your bad thing is worse than my bad thing, or my good things are better than your good things. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life, my good deeds are not as good as they think they are. And if I'm honest, there's a lot of times where my good deeds actually have a little bit of a self-serving, like I want somebody to say good job or something underneath them. And my bad deeds are, are probably worse than I think they are. See how I snuck probably in there? It's hard to take hold of. My bad deeds are worse than I think they are. And the boasting only comes if I think that I can measure up better than somebody else. At least I'm not like that. And even then, we don't usually mean it as an insult, but we're kind of picturing, okay, if God is real, and if heaven and hell are real places, and if I am going to die after a hundred years or less, um, then if God's real, I hope that when I stand before him, um, I did good enough. Because I know I'm not perfect, but I mean, some people, I mean, you know some people, right? And I know I'm not filling that blank. Isn't it always Mother Teresa? <laughs> <laughs> like, I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not there. I'm somewhere in the middle, so hopefully that's good enough. Oh my goodness, is that a lot of pressure? 86,400 seconds a day then, I can feel like, oh, that was, that was one of those not good things, right? And then what we tend to do is we either bail out on religion, because I can't handle that pressure, or we just decide that we'll just have to see how it goes when I get there. Look, if God is real... If there's going to come a moment at the end of 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that I'm going to stand before him, I would rather not get there and say, we'll see how this goes. Ho hopefully it was good enough. And I was hanging out with a, a friend of mine a couple years ago. Um, David comes to Horizon here. We were talking about this exact thing because sitting over coffee and it's like, so tell me, David, what's, what's your life journey kind of been like? And as he's talking to me, he described growing up in, in sort of a spiritual household where the primary message of spirituality was, if, you know, if I take his summary, be a good boy. And man, David's really good at that. Like, if you and I were judging from the outside, does he not do those, those bad things? And is he doing the good things? And is he trying to do more of the good things? Like, David's a good boy. And yet, he was constantly feeling pressure. Why? Because he believed that God was real and he believed he had to be good enough. And so he would go like in just in cycles of his life where it's like, today I served at City Gospel Mission. 
Hope I die today, because that would probably get me in, right? Today I, I gave the horizon. You know, if I had to die, if it was in the middle of clicking like donate, you know, that'd probably be a good time. But then the next day, ugh, I was angry at my wife, and it's not really her fault, and maybe I shouldn't have said that. Right? We all get in those places, right? And if we're trying to be good enough, then we're up and down all the time. Could you imagine if God's feelings towards you were based on your performance or your feelings about yourself? And so David and I had this whole conversation. Um, couldn't help myself, so we pulled out a page of the Bible where Jesus is literally talking about how to know for sure that God's got a spot for you in heaven. Talk through the whole thing where Jesus is like, believe in me. Believe that I've forgiven you. I know it sounds too easy, but I want to show you grace. I had this whole like hour-long conversation. And so I just looked at him across the table. I said, so David, let me hear you kind of, you know, give me this feedback. How do you know for sure that God is pleased with you? And at that moment he said, well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? And I'm thinking, oh my word, we just talked for an hour, right? And then I realized he has the exact same struggle that I do. That it's so hard to take hold of something that is in some ways as simple as grace. And he would tell you today that he has understood now that his confidence in God is not his confidence in David. It's not his ability to live up to anything. Instead, his confidence is what Christ has done. You see, that's the message of the Bible. That's the message of grace. And for David, man, the pressure is off. That now he can just live in the freedom of knowing that God's grace is a gift to him. See, what David learned that I would want for you too, accept grace as a priceless gift. You see, because God makes it available, but will you accept it? And notice that I, I chose the word priceless very carefully. It's... It is a free gift, like it doesn't cost you anything. But I feel like, I don't know about you, but like too many times, like, you know, my, my kids buy a toy and it, and it comes with something free. Or, you, you know, you buy them that kid's meal and it comes with a free toy. And it's like, free? Oh, no wonder it's made out of cardboard. <laughs> like, this is not going to last and I don't really want it. Right? So although grace is free, I want you to think of it as priceless. And what I mean by that is that it came at an incredible cost. That God himself was willing to die to show you grace. To rise again to show you grace. To give you forgiveness. But it's also priceless because you can't negotiate this thing with God. You can't go, it, we do this, right? Like I know I, I'm in your heads right now and you're probably in mine too. God, if you just let me get through this terrible season of life, I promise from now on I will. And we fill in the blanks, right? God, I know I shouldn't have done that, but, but if you forgive me, I'll never do it again. We're trying to like negotiate a contract with God. But, but here's the thing. Grace is not a debt that God owes us because of all our good deeds. But it's also not a loan. Grace is not a loan that God gives you that, okay, today's Sunday. You have your next however many years to pay God back. That's just not it. It's a gift. 
Because the picture then is that whenever we come to the end of however many years we have, really there are one of two choices. Either we stand before God in full forgiveness or we stand before God for a fair trial. Now on the surface, I know those both sound like good things, but the reality is, I don't want a fair trial. I mean, could you imagine, just forget about God's courtroom, just imagine a regular courtroom where you walk in and they've got you up on criminal charges and you say, yes, I was laundering money, but did you know that I visit my grandma every Saturday? Like, is that, that's not enough? Okay, did you know I, I also give to multiple charities? Have we evened this thing out yet? They don't care how many good things you did because you did this bad thing, right? Or could you imagine going to your spouse and saying, hey, I, I know I called you that really nasty word the other day, and I know I put you down when you were just trying to do your best, but I mowed the lawn. I, did you notice I emptied the dishwasher? These things, they balance, right? Are we there yet? Not yet? Do more good works? Okay. The reality is, I mean, you feel it, right? In, in that courtroom in your home, this thing still hurts. Do as many good things as you want. This bad thing still happened. And if you go before God for a fair trial, essentially what you're going to do is say, God, yes, I brought as many of my good things as I can remember. Um, oh my goodness, I, you remember more bad things than I did. Well, hopefully this balances out. God wants to set you free from that. And I know that there's a layer of that that is like, I have to take in first, like, if, if I'm going to trust this book, if I'm going to believe this God, if I really am going to stand before him. But if this message is true, the freedom that it provides, because God wants to offer you forgiveness. And then you get to completely skip the trial. Because the Bible is telling you that when Jesus went to the cross, your whole list, good deeds, bad deeds, whatever, was all put on Christ. That he took the punishment for all of it. So that when you stand before God, he sees nothing but goodness through Jesus Christ. And that's why a couple times in these verses it specifically mentions Jesus because there is no other way. Right? If you go up there and say, hey, I, I didn't believe in Jesus, but I would still like your grace. Oh, well, who forgave you? Who, who paid your penalty then? Well, no, but I don't, I mean, I don't trust Jesus, so... Then you got to pay it yourself. No, no, I, I thought there was supposed to be a fair trial. Oh, yeah, and we're right back in the circle. But in Jesus Christ, there's the offering of free grace, a priceless gift. So maybe a better definition of grace, a little bit simpler, is to say that it is unmerited gift of favor and forgiveness. To simplify how we don't earn it, but we can receive it. Unmerited, not earned, not deserved. God doesn't owe me, but he wants to show me favor and forgiveness. Now that's like the really kind of, you know, theological, heavy, spiritual piece of this. But grace then becomes incredibly practical. Because the grace that God shows me is the grace he wants me to show others. That if my life has no grace, not only does morality become like a moving target, but it means that my relationships become strained. Right? My, my family life becomes strained. Friendships break apart if Carl doesn't show me grace. 
I, I wouldn't have this really nice Jamaican rug at my house right now. So he wants us to feel that grace, to receive that grace, and then to pass it on. And so I love this next line, because most of the times I hear people talk about this, they skip this part, but check out verse 10 from this letter. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's Jesus right at the center of it again for good works. Wait a minute. I thought you just said it's not about good works. Hold on, let him finish. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So essentially what he's saying is we've got these two things backwards. Most of the time we think that if I do good works, God will give me grace. God wipes that whole thing away. He says, I'll tell you what, let's do this instead. I'll just give you grace. And then I'll show you how that can play out in your life. Yeah, we'll call them good works. Because it's be patient with your kids. It's be kind to your wife. It's be friendly to your neighbor. It's be generous to those around you. And I got to tell you, I think this is what's amazing about grace. I think this is the moment that Paul is saying, I want you to be amazed by grace. Because it's either, I mean, honestly, it could be offensive. There was a, there was a kid down the hall here a couple, couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our uh, teen teachers told me, they were talking about grace, and this kid goes, wait a minute, you're telling me, I, I mean, it sounds like you're saying, you get as much grace as you need. And the teacher's like, yes, you got it. Well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> How does that sound terrible? Because his concern was, there are too many people who have done too many bad things, and grace should be off the table for them. All right, so we got to go through that. we got to process through that. Because in some ways, it's offensive. Like, even just to look at my own life and say, he's just going to forgive me for all of that? Which is why it's important to remember the price God paid for it. Because that starts to shift us from offensive to, yeah, well, I mean, if he's God, he ought to give me grace. And then I probably haven't fully accepted, like, how much I need it. Because when I see that, and when I see the opportunity to share it around me, it becomes amazing. There's a guy named John who, who kind of learned this the hard way. John joined what was basically the equivalent of the Navy in his country. And he had some ups and downs, some things that went well, some things that did not go well. And essentially, um, his career was cut short as he was basically dishonorably discharged. Now, while he was in that Navy, he traveled to a lot of different places. And unfortunately, in his travels, he saw how lucrative the human trafficking industry was. And so when he got kicked out of the Navy, he went into business for himself, if you will, in human trafficking. And he was, uh, by those standards, a huge success. And he was influential in that realm. He was becoming wealthy. But you and I can hear it right away. We're like, how could you throw your life away like that? But as he went through this, it increased. It got better. It, it, it got more profitable. He didn't care about who he was hurting. He cared about himself. Until one day, he met Jesus. <laughs> and then he struggled. And then he struggled. Because by his standards, he had a lot going for him. And now there was this piece of him that was feeling like if Jesus is who he says he is, 
maybe I shouldn't sell people to other people? Uh, right? I mean, to, to you and I, on the surface, like, that's it. Like, you shouldn't even have needed to meet Jesus, right? But it was when he met Jesus that this moment broke through because in his society, it was generally accepted still. And so this was like, this was not only counterintuitive for him, but to a lot of the people that he would have been around his entire life, that Jesus, he felt like, was saying, you shouldn't be doing that. And so for a while, he tried to figure out, maybe I can combine this Jesus thing with what I already do in my life. Maybe if I <clears throat> feed them better or, or say nice things to them, then can I still sell people to people? No. And so he hit a point in his life where he realized it wasn't just enough to say, I want grace from God, but I don't want to pass it on. He realized if I've really trusted for grace from God, then I've got to pass it on. And you may actually be more familiar with John's story than you realize because his name was John Newton. And he was one of the most influential people in having the slave trade outlawed in his country. That he took the grace that God had put in his life and he said, you know what? If this is true for me, this has to be true for everybody. My life has to shift to being about what God wants to be about. And he spent the rest of his life putting an end to the slave trade. And if all of that sounds strange and unfamiliar, then I'll give you one more little detail. Because John Newton was also a songwriter. And John Newton wrote the song, Amazing Grace. Now think about those words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You know, when I think about a story like his, I realize that probably all of your stories are different than his. But what I love about that, and you see examples of it all the way through the Bible, there are examples of it in this room right now, and I'm one of them. That if John Newton can experience grace, maybe I can too. And he would be a guy at the end of his life, I don't know how long he lived, it wasn't a hundred years, but his epitaph would be grace. His was a life completely out of tune until he found the grace of God and then he lived a life in tune with grace. So as we listen to his song, would you listen to it as if it were your own? I love that tune and I would love to encourage you to live in tune with grace this week. It may be that there's somebody you need to show grace to. And maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend or somebody you work with. But can I encourage you, don't try to do that without accepting grace from God first. You know, if you've never done that before, maybe this is a week to do that and to live in tune with grace. Can I pray for you? God, thank you that you want us to know you as exceedingly kind. Thank you for showing me that in my own life. Lord, thank you. God, I pray that you would show it to all of us here. That we would understand your priceless gift. That we'd be able to share it with those around us. That our lives would be in tune with that amazing grace. And we will thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm really thankful that you are here today. 
I want you, don't forget that family night that we heard about at the beginning. And if you were just a couple minutes late, like I was, and you missed the video, check it out on our website. It's really funny. Um, and it's got some great info about a fun event that's coming up. And I'd love to see you there. I'm glad I got to see you here today. And I'd love to see you next week. Thank you for coming. Mm -hmm.